Well, hello again, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I am Nurse Mo, and I am, as always, really excited to be here with you today. We're going to be talking about polycythemia vera today for episode number 210. And I want you to stick with this one to the end because I will be sharing, I'll be taking it more personal and sharing my own experience with this condition after we go through all of the basics together. And if you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, take a minute and do that. That way, every Thursday, when you get out of bed in the morning, there's a brand new episode already there and waiting for you. So go ahead, do that now. And if you are so inclined, take a moment to also rate and review the podcast. I love reading your reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Podcasts. And I'm going to share one with you now for our listener shout out. So I always give a shout out at the beginning of the episode to say thank you to my San fam. And this one goes out to Caslin, who says, the best resource for nursing. Hey there, I'm so thankful for Nurse Mo and all of her help. I wake up every day and find a new episode to listen to. Nurse Mo has helped me get through my first semester and pass. She is wonderful. Five-star rating, in my opinion. So Caslin, just want to say thank you so much. I know as a first semester student, second semester student, you're really busy. And to take the time to submit that review and write your thoughtful comments is so appreciated. I am so certain that your encouraging words have inspired another student to also listen. And hopefully together, we're changing the world one podcast episode at a time. So thanks, Caslin. I really appreciate you. Okay, you guys, so today we're talking about polycythemia vera, and you'll often see this simply referred to as PV, and polycythemia vera is the most common of the myeloproliferative neoplasms. You'll see those referred to as MPNs. Those pretty rare MPNs are serious conditions that are caused by an overproduction or, if you want to get fancy, proliferation of bone marrow stem cells. Now, recall that blood cells originate from bone marrow stem cells. So individuals with MPNs have disorders related to the quantity and the quality of blood cells. Now, when we look at MPNs, there are three types. Essential thrombocythemia which is also simply referred to as ET most of the time, this patient basically has too many platelets, and I'm oversimplifying it a great deal, but just know, ET, too many platelets. And then there's polycythemia vera, which we'll be talking about in more detail today. And this one involves an overabundance of red blood cells and possibly also platelets and white blood cells. So that's where the poly comes from. It's usually red blood cells and another bloodline, not always, but usually. And then myelofibrosis, that condition is when there's fibrosis or scarring of the bone marrow with a decreased ability to produce blood cells. So let's talk about polycythemia vera pathophysiology. So PV occurs due to a malignant change. So it's considered a chronic cancer, a non metastasizing cancer. So it is due to a malignant change in the DNA of a single cell in the bone marrow. Now, studies show that about 90% of individuals with PV have a very specific mutation of the JAK2 gene, which promotes a protein or makes a protein that signals cells to proliferate and grow. So this mutation causes neoplastic proliferation of the cells that become red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. So the result is a significantly high level of RBCs that can occur, again, with or without elevated platelets and white blood cells as well. So again, most people with PV have a JAK2 genetic mutation, 
And this makes a protein that signals cells to proliferate and grow. And it's going to signal red blood cells to proliferate and grow. That's a hard word to say. Uh, White blood cells and platelets as well. So the result, significantly high red blood cell count, probably also with that high platelets and sometimes white blood cells as well. So again, we have an overproduction of cells, right? Namely, the red blood cells, and this can result in thrombosis. It's really important to note, however, that it's not just ischemic events that can happen with PV. Hemorrhage can also occur. And when I first learned about this, it took me a moment to figure that out because I'm looking at a lab result that has platelets above 900, and I'm thinking, holy cow, that looks like a really, really big risk for a thrombotic and ischemic event. Actually, when you have way too many platelets like that, they're often produced so quickly that they're not actually mature, super functional platelets, so they're not able to actually support the normal clotting mechanism. So you can have disordered bleeding, coagulopathies resulting in hemorrhage with PV as well as thrombotic or ischemic events. Now, other complications, there are quite a few Splenomegaly is one of the most common where the spleen gets really enlarged. It is more likely to occur in men than in women, but it can happen in both. And then, so splenomegaly puts the patient at risk for infection because remember the spleen plays a really important role in infection prevention and splenic rupture, especially if the individual is involved, let's say, in a trauma like a car accident or a fall, or maybe they don't realize that they have PV and they're playing contact sports or riding their bike and they fall off. So high high risk for splenic rupture. Now, another notable and serious complication is something called the spent phase. And in this phase, basically the bone marrow is worn out. It's no longer able to produce functioning blood cells. It's spent. So this phase is characterized by an enlarged spleen, so that splenomegaly, low blood counts, and bone marrow fibrosis. Additionally, a patient with PV could have, if their blood counts are out of control and high, hyperviscous blood, so very thick blood. And this hyperviscosity puts the patient at risk for impaired blood flow and blood clot formation. And this can lead to both microvascular and macrovascular infarctions. Patient can have angina, patient can have pulmonary embolism, patient can have strokes, all kinds of bad things can happen when you're impeding blood flow. And then additionally, hyperuricemia can occur due to that large number of red blood cells being produced, and this can lead to kidney stones and it can lead to gout. Further, the excess histamine secretion that occurs in PV can lead to gastrointestinal problems such as peptic ulcer and epigastric distress. So let's talk a little bit now about the two types of polycythemia because you will hear this referred to in your studies, and I want you to understand the difference of them. So the cause of the condition determines the type of polycythemia. So primary polycythemia, which is that polycythemia vera, that occurs to that genetic mutation. And I just want to point out that this genetic mutation is not typically hereditary, okay? And then secondary polycythemia occurs due to chronic hypoxemia. This causes an increase in erythropoietin or EPO. So when you're chronically hypoxic, your body's not getting enough oxygen, there's going to be an increase in the production of EPO. And when there's more EPO being produced, this leads to more red blood cells being produced because we're attempting to provide the tissues with adequate oxygen. So we're increasing basically our oxygen carrying capacity. So primary polycythemia is that polycythemia vera, which is what we're talking about today. But if you have a patient who comes in who has COPD and their red blood cells are high, it's likely they have secondary polycythemia, okay? Now, polycythemia vera is usually seen in adult males 
older than 60 years, but it can occur at any age. And we're going to talk about that more further on. Other risk factors include, of course, that JAK2 mutation and exposure to radiation and toxic substances. So you've got now kind of a basic background of PV. I want to go through it with you using my straight nursing latte method to really streamline your studying. So the first letter is an L, and that stands for look. How does the patient look? Basically, what are their signs and symptoms? So many times, many, many times, PV is asymptomatic, and many people are not diagnosed until they have a complication, commonly a thrombotic event, which is really sad. Many of the symptoms that people with PV have are just, if they have symptoms, are kind of broad, and when you look at them, you don't necessarily think, oh, that's PV, because they seem kind of nonspecific. But the symptoms are caused in a nutshell, many of them anyway, by poor circulation, that impaired blood flow, which is secondary to red blood cells and platelets creating that hyperviscous blood. So it's just too thick to move properly. And then there, of course, can be thrombosis or clot formation, which impedes or completely blocks blood flow. So obviously, if blood flow is completely blocked, you're having a serious, critical, urgent event. I'm talking here more about those just general symptoms that somebody might have even before they realize they have PV or before they have that signature critical thrombotic event. So really common symptoms are headache, dizziness, difficulty concentrating, and visual disturbances. And this is basically impaired blood flow to the brain and to the vasculature of the eye. The patient may have a flushed complexion. They could have shortness of breath when they're lying down, lying down flat. Night sweats is not uncommon. Itching after a shower or a bath. Now, this seems totally random. Like, why would water touching your skin cause you to itch? And I believe the term is aquagenic pruritus. I'd have to look it up. I'm speaking off the top of my head here, so don't take me um, verbatim for that. But this itching is actually one of the most life, quality of life diminishing symptoms for people that have polycythemia varia. It's absolutely excruciating. The patient could have increased bleeding tendencies such as bleeding gums, nosebleeds, hemoptysis, easy bruising, and heavy menstrual periods. They could even have numbness or tingling in the extremities, hypertension, and distended abdomen with or without feelings of satiety or early fullness due to that enlarged spleen. Okay, so that's in general what they look like, what their signs and symptoms are, what they might complain of when they come into the clinic and start saying, hey, doc, hey, nurse practitioner, I've been having these headaches. I have night sweats. I itch after a shower. Like what's going on there? And when you look at them, their complexion's flushed and they say my periods are really heavy and I, I just bruise so, so easily. So again, you see how those are just like what's going on? It just seems like random, very generalized symptoms. So that's often why it's not necessarily diagnosed based on those symptoms because if I have headaches, I think, oh, I'm stressed or I think, oh, I'm dehydrated, right? Or I think, oh, my blood sugar's low, I should go eat something. I don't automatically think, oh, I bet I have a bone marrow disorder that's causing overproduction of red blood cells. And we're gonna talk about this more when I get into my personal story at the kind of towards the end of this episode. But let's move on now to looking at how do you assess the patient. So the next letter in the latte method is A, and that's basically assessment. So assessments for a patient who has PV are generally going to be around recognizing thrombotic events. So you're assessing their neurostatus and their visual acuity as abnormalities can indicate neurological impairment. You also want to assess for cardiac dysrhythmias or even chest pain secondary to reduced blood flow to the heart. 
And then more generalized things, not necessarily related to a thrombotic event, but related to impaired blood flow. Um, angina can occur. So that chest pain could be from angina, could be from a thrombotic event. Assess the level of fatigue and really importantly, how this affects their quality of life. And as always, get a full set of vital signs with a patient with polycythemia vera. Most likely they're going to have elevated blood pressure because they just have so much more volume. But get a full set of vital signs and take a full assessment of your patient. And that way you could do a full skin assessment, look for bruising, all of those types of things kind of related to their signs and symptoms and what they came in complaining of. Now looking at the next letter in the latte method is T, what tests are going to be ordered for PV? So when first diagnosing the condition, you're likely to see the MD order a CBC and an EPO level. Now, if that EPO level is normal or lower than normal, this is indicative of primary polycythemia or polycythemia vera. Now, if the EPO level is elevated, this is suggestive for secondary polycythemia. Remember, the EPO level is going to be increased in response to chronic hypoxemia, and that EPO is going to encourage the body to make more red blood cells. So if EPO is high, it's likely that the patient has secondary polycythemia. Now, other tests include genetic testing could be done to determine if the individual has that JAK2 mutation. A bone marrow biopsy could be conducted. Ultrasound could be done to assess the spleen for enlargement or if it is enlarged to assess it. And also look for any other organ damage associated with the condition. If there's other organs that aren't getting proper perfusion, let's take a look at those. The individual with PV will also have their blood counts routinely tested on an ongoing basis namely looking at hemoglobin, hematocrit, platelets, and white blood cells. Now, if they are taking medications that can impact, let's say, liver function or renal function, those labs will be followed as well. Now, the next letter in the latte method is a T, and that means treatments. What treatments are typically provided for polycythemia vera? So the first thing to note is there's no cure for polycythemia vera, treatments are going to be aimed at reducing that individual's risk for thrombosis and managing those symptoms. So the current literature states that for asymptomatic patients who are at low risk for disease progression, and it will be the MD that determines their risk factors, the standard treatment is low-dose aspirin and phlebotomy to keep the hematocrit below 45%. Now, some physicians will use hemoglobin as the parameter. Some use hematocrit, but the studies that I found mentioned hematocrit specifically. For symptomatic patients, the recommendation is for cytoreductive therapy, and some patients may require cytoreductive therapy along with low-dose aspirin and phlebotomy. It just depends on their response to the medication and their risk for thrombotic events. So before we move on to talking specifically about some medications, pharmacology, let's talk about phlebotomy for just a moment in case you've never heard that term before. So phlebotomy is basically like a reverse blood transfusion. Instead of going to the infusion center to get blood, and a blood transfusion, these patients go to an infusion center and get blood removed, and that is called a phlebotomy, okay? So the goal there, again, if the hematocrit or the hemoglobin, whatever parameter the MD sets is too elevated, then the patient will go and have some blood removed, get their, their red blood cells counted again, and see if they get under the parameter, okay? If not, they get another phlebotomy until they get to where they are at that safer level for not having a thrombotic event. Now, patients who undergo phlebotomy could get hypotensive. Usually, they're a little on the higher side, so it's not always a factor, but most of the time, the patient will get some fluids, especially if they're feeling hypotensive or dizzy or lightheaded. So blood removed, but some fluids added back in. Okay, so that's phlebotomy. 
Now, looking at pharmacologic therapies, these pharmacologic therapies are aimed at managing symptoms, reducing the risk of thrombosis, and decreasing blood cell production. So hydroxyurea, and I should probably check to see if I said that right. Ooh, I did. I just checked. So hydroxyurea is an anti-neoplastic medication that reduces blood cell production. Sounds pretty good, right? If we can reduce blood cell production, we won't make so many red blood cells. We won't make so many platelets or white blood cells. Symptoms get better. Thrombosis risk improves. However, long-term use has shown to put patients at higher risk for developing secondary cancers. And in addition to that, it places the patient at risk for infection. And then other common adverse events with hydroxyurea are nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, and headache. Hydroxyurea is taken PO daily as a single dose, and the patient will need to avoid exposure to sunlight by wearing protective clothing and sunscreen. So even though it can work really well, it does have a side effect profile that can make it um, challenging for patients. When I was a student, I did see another issue, you know, with this risk for infection. There's also the risk for developing these ulcers and they can occur in the mouth, they can occur on the body. And when I was a student, I spent a day in the wound care clinic And one of the patients that came in was taking this medication and had basically an ulcer on their leg that just was not healing. So they had to come into the wound clinic and get extensive wound therapy for that. And I remembered that about this medication. Another one is called ruxolitinib. And I'm kind of proud of myself that I said that one right on the first try. This one goes by brand name Jackify. Nobody can say Ruxolinidib. (laughs) See, I already can't say it. Um, So you'll mostly hear this called Jackify. This is another anti-neoplastic medication. And this may be used in patients who are not able to tolerate hydroxyurea. Now, this medication is an oral chemotherapy administered in tablet form once or twice a day. And it comes with all the potential side effects that you would expect from an anti-neoplastic agent. The key one, again, being high risk for infection and risk for development of other cancers, namely with this med, it's skin cancer. Another anti-neoplastic agent is called busulfan, and this one has been used to treat PV for decades, but anymore it's not often utilized as first-line therapy due to some pretty significant adverse effects that include pulmonary fibrosis, leukemia, and another unpleasant side effect is skin pigmentation. You also may see this patient given low-dose aspirin, and that would be given daily to prevent thrombosis. Anagrelide is another medication that is used to lower the platelet count specifically, which can decrease the risk of thrombosis or decrease the risk of hemorrhage because the patient has such poorly developed platelets. And then we get into the injectable medication That is interferon, and interferon is being used more in polycythemia. So interferon alpha is an injectable medication given subcutaneously to reduce blood cells. It comes with a lot of potential side effects, including fatigue, alopecia, pruritus, nausea, vomiting, and bone and muscle pain. So you'll see a couple different types of interferon. Alpha, and so one of them is just straight interferon alpha, and then the other and more common approach is to use a pegylated interferon. And when it's pegylated, I don't know, I'm not going to dive into the pharmacokinetics or how it's made, but basically what it does is it makes it so that the individual doesn't have to take it like daily. You can take it instead weekly or so, and the pegylation causes the medication just to have, it's kind of like making it into an extended release tablet, except it's an injection. So that's like the basic of that. And that's probably as much as you need to know. So you will see, but probably less and less, you will see a medication called Pegasus, which is 
interferon alpha 2a or pegylated interferon alpha 2a and pegasus was originally made for the treatment of hepatitis and it is not as common for polycythemia vera it's actually an off-label use i believe for polycythemia vera it's really effective for polycythemia vera but it's mainly used in the treatment of hepatitis well now hepatitis i think it's hepatitis c has a less unpleasant course of treatment. I believe it's oral medication only. So the production of Pegasus may be dropping off. And there is another pegylated interferon called Ropeg interferon, alpha-2b NJFT, goes by, I almost said the code name, uh, goes by the brand name Bezremi, if I'm saying that correctly. So this is, again, another long-acting interferon. So you'll see a few different things. Sometimes the patient will be taking it, I think it might be daily if it's not pegylated, but more commonly that pegylated form as Pegasus or the newer drug Bezremi. And then for kind of that symptom management, remember I said hyperuricemia can occur. So that patient who has hyperuricemia could get allopurinol, and that's going to decrease uric acid in the body. And just as a side note, uric acid can develop when blood cells turn over too rapidly, which occurs in polycythemia vera. And then antihistamines could be used to treat that pruritus, which again can be very, very severe. So just to recap pharmacology, we have PO antineoplastic agents, hydroxyurea, ruxolitinib, which goes by the much easier to pronounce name of Jacophy. Hopefully I'm saying that one right. Busulfan, which is another antineoplastic medication. Remember, that was the one that was used kind of old school, not used so much now because of the side effect profile. Low-dose aspirin, anagrelide, which is the one that just addresses the platelets, and then the injectable medication that interferon alpha, which is most likely in pegylated form, allopurinol for hyperuricemia, and antihistamines for that pruritus that can occur. And then we have some non-pharmacologic treatments, and these include, if you have patients in the hospital with PV, early ambulation and range of motion, and that's gonna help improve blood flow and help prevent thrombotic events. So this is a patient that if they're in bed, they're getting their scuds on. And you know, a lot of times patients will say, can we take these off, they're really hot, or they don't find them comfortable, I think they feel great. It's like a massage. Um, but this is that patient that is at such high risk, you know, you really have to educate them on the benefits of wearing those sequential compression devices. Advising the patient or, you know, at home using lukewarm baths instead of really hot water or lukewarm showers instead of really hot showers. And routine use of skin moisturizer can help with the severity of the pruritus. So that's a non-pharmacologic treatment for that. And then splenectomy may actually be needed if the patient has that splenomegaly. Recall that the spleen is that filter. It's the filter for the blood. With PV, you have that high number of blood cells. And so the spleen is working harder and harder and harder than it normally would. And over time, the spleen grows to kind of meet that demand. And once it gets too big, again, risk for infection, so it's not going to be functioning as well, and risk for rupture. It may need to be removed. And then blood transfusions. This could be needed for the patient who gets into that spent phase that we talked about earlier when the bone marrow that has been working on overtime for years suddenly or gradually is no longer able to produce adequate healthy blood cells. So that patient may need blood transfusion. And then again, that phlebotomy would be a non-pharmacologic treatment. So the next letter in the LATTE method is an E, and that stands for educate. Nurses are fantastic educators. So how do you educate this patient? How do you educate their caregivers, their family? So one of the key things you want them to understand is that they're going to be getting routine lab monitoring. This is going to be CBC monitoring 
And again, some medications can affect the liver, can affect the kidneys. They're going to need those things monitored as well. They may need to get a bone marrow biopsy. What does that entail? Teach them that this procedure is often done with just a local anesthetic at the bedside or possibly in a clinic. So they would want to understand that, what it's necessary for, and if it would need to be repeated because it is a significantly painful procedure. If the patient is taking medication for their condition, maybe not just getting a phlebotomy, of course, you want to make sure that they understand everything about that medication administration. You know, taking aspirin with food is very important for limiting that GI upset. The anti-neoplastic tablets should not be touched with bare hands. You want to teach the patient to wear gloves if they're handling it, or, you know, perhaps they can get one of the tablets into the lid and then just use the lid to pop it in their mouth. They don't want to be touching it, but if they do wear gloves, then they need to understand that they need to put the, uh, not reuse those gloves and throw them away in an appropriate container. And then, of course, if the patient is self-injecting their pegylated interferon, they need to be taught how to do that. And basically, it's just like what you learn in nursing school, you know, cleaning the site, what the sub-Q sites are, how to draw it up out of the syringe, how to inject it, all of those things. You also want to teach the patient to avoid sitting cross-legged to promote venous blood flow and help prevent blood clots. You also want to teach the patient undergoing splenectomy that they will have to stay current on their vaccines due to their higher risk for infection. And then if your patient is having a phlebotomy, teach them to maintain hydration status after the procedure and to change positions slowly. Let's say they are going to be standing up after their phlebotomy. You want to teach them to do that slowly and to continue doing that until their blood pressure can normalize because they're at high risk for orthostatic hypotension. If your patient with PV has fatigue, which is a very common symptom, teach them to try to limit their naps to 20 minutes in duration during the day so as to not disrupt their normal sleep pattern at night. And then that bathing or showering induced pruritus, which can be so severe, teach the patient to avoid the use of harsh soaps and scrubbing the skin you also could advise maybe not toweling off, uh, you know, roughly, but instead patting dry and using an oil-based cream can help reduce that. So using that right after the shower and again, those antihistamines, which can help their pruritus as well. So I hope that overview helps you understand polycythemia vera. So you can feel confident when you are in clinical or doing a case study or taking your nursing school exam. So as promised, I am going to tell you a polycythemia vera story. So um, I always find it helpful when you are learning about a disease condition to actually apply it to an actual case or an actual scenario because it really helps you understand it so much more thoroughly. So... When we look at polycythemia and we are going through the latte method, I'm going to go through the latte method with you now with my experience because I was diagnosed with polycythemia vera in 2011. And I remember, it's so funny, the things you remember from nursing school, like random thoughts, right? Random facts about random things. And I remember, I can almost even still picture what it looked like to be looking at my med surge book. Do, do you guys have your med surge book in physical form? It's huge. I called mine Big Red because it was a red book and it was, it was humongous. So I was looking at Big Red and I can almost just still even picture where it was located on the page. And I don't know why this stuck with me, but I remember reading about polycythemia vera in nursing school before I was diagnosed and reading that patients with PV have a life expectancy after diagnosis. Um, or was it even after onset? I can't remember, but the number 10 years stood out to me. And, and then I never really thought about it again until I got my diagnosis. And 
So to be diagnosed with something that your literature in nursing school said I had 10 years to live was really, really, really scary. What I learned soon after that, because of course, I immediately started doing my own research, was that nursing school textbooks are often pretty far behind, and it was without context, right? So remember earlier I said it's usually diagnosed in men in their 60s, and that coupled with the fact that nursing school textbooks are often behind the times, that life expectancy, I felt like did not apply to me. I was not going to believe that that applied to me because that was unacceptable, to be honest. So um, I just it's just funny that I remembered that one random fact, and then later it came back to actually be very personal for me. So when we look at the L, how does the patient look? What are their signs and symptoms? I had a lot of these symptoms, but of course did not think that I had anything serious going on. I just thought, well, that's weird. You know, and we do that, right? Especially when we're really busy and we have a lot going on. So my symptoms started in, I want to say, anatomy and physiology two, which was, I think, the summer before my last semester of prereqs. Okay, so I took A&P two over the summer, which was intense. And then I remember having symptoms in organic chemistry, which was my one of my final prereq classes. So I'm in AP2 having migraines, like horrible, horrible migraine headaches. And at that time, of course, didn't know what was going on, but I'm having these migraines. I'm basically in class. The class was, you know eight to four every day or something like that, Monday through Thursday. It was a really intense schedule. So I'm there at the at the campus, horrible headaches. I never miss class, you guys, never. I did not miss a single class until one day I did have a migraine that warranted me going home. But I was in A&P too, thinking, oh, I'm dehydrated. Oh, I'm studying too much. Oh, I'm stressed because I was. And so I was just drinking a ton of water, which can help with PV because it can help kind of dilute the blood, make the viscosity a little bit less so that you get improved blood flow. But um, I had gone to, um, no, I hadn't gone to the doctor yet. I was going to say I had gone to the doctor and gotten a prescription for migraine medicine, but I didn't do that until later. So yeah, I was just kind of self-treating with Excedrin migraine and copious amounts of hydration, not enough to cause hyponatremia, but, you know, just really focusing on my hydration. Um, Thank God I did, because I could have easily had a very, very serious um, reduced blood flow, anoxic, you know, diffuse anoxic um, neurological event with that. I was taking, I remember one day I was taking an exam for A&P too. It might have been my final. I can't remember. I think it was because it was a pretty high stakes exam. And the headache was so bad, I would get these, um, I could barely see, I had visual disturbances, so can barely read my, my test paper. I had drank so much water, and at that point, you know, 40 minutes into the exam, I had to go to the bathroom really, really bad. I was nauseous because of the headache. Uh, my bladder was about to burst. I could barely see my exam paper. And if you guys have listened to my podcast, you know, I was like turbo nursing student. I wanted to get into um, Sac State, California State University, Sacramento, very competitive program. I knew I had to have straight A's to get in, to even have a chance to get in. And I knew I had to do well on this exam. So high stakes, right? I got to a point in that exam where I was like, I can't, I got to go. I might, I might throw up. I definitely have to go pee and I can barely see. So I need to just step away from this for a minute. And I knew when I went up to the instructor and said, I've got to go to the ladies room, there was a pretty good chance he was going to say, okay, turn in your test because, you know, people cheat that way, right? They go to the bathroom and look at notes or whatever. I remember I walked up there with my test. I was not done. I was probably 
85, 90% done, but I just could not hang on anymore. And I handed it to him. I said, I ha- I'm not done yet, but I have got to go to the ladies room. And I fully expected him to just take my test and say, okay, you're, you're, you're done with your exam. But he looked at me and there some- must have been something in my face that showed I was suffering immensely. And he said, okay, and he paused for a minute and I could tell he kind of thought about it. And he said, okay, you can come back and finish. So I went and I was like, oh my gosh, that, thank you. <laughs> thank you for showing me some grace, right? Um, I went to care of my business. I don't know if I threw up or not. I can't remember if I did. I probably felt a little bit better. Um, but I, I came back. I finished, you know, the last few questions and uh, went home and immediately went to bed. So that was the one time that I remember having the world's worst headache. And then another time in organic chemistry, the one time in all of my prereqs, all of nursing school that I missed a period of class. I went to the class, but I left partway through because my headache was so severe. I drove home, probably shouldn't have, drove home, called the emergency nurse, uh, not the emergency nurse, the advice nurse with my health care plan, and basically realized after the fact that she was asking me stroke risk questions. Like, is this the worst headache you've ever had in your life? Did it come on suddenly? Would you describe it as a thunderclap headache? All of these things. Can you move your arms? I did have bilateral arm weakness, but not super severe, but definitely not 100%. Um, I remember driving home thinking, holy cow, I should not be driving because the visual disturbances were so significant. Um, I think I stayed off the highways, just stayed on, uh, you know, unbusy as possible surface streets to get myself home. I don't know where my husband was. He's a firefighter. So there's a really good chance that he was just at work and unavailable. So anyway, that was the other time that I had the world's worst headache. So I was having these headaches that were really, really bad. Um, my complexion was my complexion flushed. I don't remember. Maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit. I did not have shortness of breath when lying down. I may have had night sweats periodically, but not constantly, you know, enough to just think, oh, I'm just a hot sleeper, right? Because some people do. They sleep hot. Did I have itching? Nope. I did not have any itching until after I started uh, taking medication, (laughs) and then it was really bad. Um, I did not have the itching. Um, I did have easy bruising, 100%, and I did have some numbness, tingling, uh, kind of that nerve tingling in a toe. So there was a toe that was not getting enough blood flow. Um, I did not have hypertension. I was always very, um, I probably had normal blood pressure because normally I was very low, like high 90s, like regular blood pressure. So for me to have a blood pressure of 115 would be a little bit high for me. So I probably had that. I did not have any spleen issues. I would say those were my main symptoms. It was the headache, It was the visual disturbances, sometimes with or without a headache. Sometimes I would get the visual aura and no headache. And I and I knew that if I got the visual aura, drank a good amount of water, um, I could sometimes not get the migraine with it. And I haven't had one of those in a while, which is great because it's really disorienting to not be able to see well. And then another time, probably the scariest thing that happened was I was in a yoga class. And this was probably, this was once I was in nursing school. I was in a yoga class. And I don't think I had done yoga in a while because, you know, you're really busy in nursing school. You don't get to do all the things. It was probably on summer break. I was um, taking a yoga class at the rock climbing gym where I used to go and uh, climb the walls. Super fun if you've never tried it. And I got angina. I, I, at least I hope it was just angina because I felt a really intense mid-sternal squeezing chest pain that took my breath away. I had to sit down. And I remember thinking, holy, holy cow, what is that? I just need to catch my breath. I just thought I just need to catch my breath. 
and it did subside. So it probably was just angina, but it, it hurt. It hurt like a son of a gun. Um, if it had not subsided, I, I hope that I would have had the wherewithal to alert my friend to say you need to call for help because I think I'm having a heart attack. But that was terrifying to me. Like what in the actual heck? I was, you know, not that old, <laughs> definitely not in my 60s and having just all these weird kind of symptoms. So um, went ahead, graduated nursing school, did not, as many students do, did not prioritize my well-being. Like I would try to catch up with my self-care, catch up with my exercise on my breaks, but never to the point that I thought, I'm going to go get this checked out because this is weird. Never did that. Started working in the ICU as a new grad. Again, super stressful, not prioritizing my self-care. Um, I since have developed a lot more balance around that, or at least I hope I have. But I went for a normal checkup, you guys, with my nurse practitioner, just a normal checkup. Um, nothing was going on. I was just like, oh, I should go get, you know, I should go just see Nurse Gale and, you know, check in, as one does. So I went to see Nurse Gale. I believe, actually, I think I was going for one of my yearly um, exams, my lady exams. And I think I I oh I know what I did. I remember my husband and I were we we kind of have this friendly competition about whose cholesterol level can be better. And I hadn't had my cholesterol checked in a couple of years. And Tom had just had his done. And I was like, oh, I got you beat. I know I got you beat because um I think I was a pretty healthy eater. Um, I definitely didn't eat as much high fat stuff as he did. So I was like, I gotcha. So I, but I wanted to get it checked. So I asked uh, Nurse Gail for a cholesterol level. And she's like, oh, well, we'll just do a whole panel and just check things out. You haven't had that done in a while. I was like, okay, cool, fine. So I got my CBC done and it was abnormal, you guys. Yeah, shocker, right? So CBC was abnormal. Hemoglobin was 17.1 which is high. So my doctor on my, you know, my medical record, my normal range for me uh, for woman is 11.5 to 15 for hemoglobin. So mine was 17. Uh, normal hematocrit for me is 34 to 46, according to my medical record for the reference range. And my hematocrit was 51.8. And then platelets According to uh, the medical facility that I go through, as you know, every facility has a different reference range. Uh, my normal reference range is 140 to 400, and my platelets were 859, which is really high, right? So, um, you know, when you get a lab result you don't expect or a result of any kind as a nurse, what do you do? You don't expect it. Seems off. Wow, I wasn't expecting this. We rechecked it, right? You reassess. So I went back on the 3rd of July. So that initial one was June 23rd. Went back on July 3rd and <laughs> everything was worse. Hemoglobin was up just a hair to 17.2. Hematocrit was up just a hair to 51.9, but clearly not a one-off thing, right? Platelets were about the same, 858. White count was, I believe, normal for me. I never had an elevated white count. I think there were times when it was a little on the high end and normal, but it never, you know, went way high. So thank goodness for that. So at that point, I believe I got a referral to an oncologist. And I was sitting in my one of my new grad classes. So I went through a residency program. And if you want to hear about that, you can go and listen to episode 205, I believe it is, where I talk about nurse residency programs, and I share my experience with my residency program. And part of that was classroom time. So I was in my class. And I see I got a phone call, but I don't answer because I'm in class. And then I check my voicemail. And I had not gotten a heads up from my doctor that they were referring me to a specialist. I just get a voicemail that says, hi, this is so-and-so from um, the oncology center calling to schedule your appointment with Dr. Somebody. And I'm like, what? Did you say oncology? So I'm sitting there. I'm in shock. And almost I don't know. I couldn't even process. So I, I excused myself. I returned the call. And 
And she's like, oh, well, it's hematology, oncology. So don't panic. But you do need to come see the heme, heme, hematology, oncology, the heme onc doctor. And I was like, why didn't you say hematology and oncology? I would have felt like, well, hematology makes sense, right? Anyway, panic moment for there. So I go and I see um, the specialist. I get more labs drawn. And over the next few weeks, um, you know, my numbers are going up. At um, On July 19th, I get my first phlebotomy and scared, obviously, and went with a friend. A friend went with me because, again, husband's a firefighter. <laughs> he was on probation. Firefighters have to do a probationary period. It's like a whole year where you cannot, you cannot mess around. You can't miss a day of work. You can't do anything outside the lines. So he couldn't take any days off to come be with me, which I, I totally understood. I was 100% supportive of that. So my friend came with me, thank goodness. And the blood was so viscous and so thick, it would not come out of the, it would not flow. It would not flow out of my body through the catheter into the collection device. So the nurse that was there, you know, she'd clearly done this before because they take care of polycythemia patients all the time. So she ended up putting on a three-way stop, I think it was a three-way stopcock. So if you've played around with those, you know what I'm talking about. And was able to kind of flush some saline in and then open the stopcock and kind of loosen things up and so it would get to flow. So whenever it would slow down, she'd come over and do that stopcock flush, turn the stopcock thing. And in that way, I was able to get my first phlebotomy, okay? And after that phlebotomy, you know, hemoglobin came down some, hematocrit came down some, platelets, not so much. Platelets went up to 972. I found as I as that happened, that sometimes when there's that abrupt removal of blood from the body, the body's like, oh my gosh, we're bleeding. We need more platelets. Let's stop the bleeding. So it makes more platelets. So my platelets went up. I got another phlebotomy a few days later because I was still above my doctor's reference range. He wanted my hemoglobin to stay below 14. Now in the earlier, I said usually it's a hematocrit uh, threshold for phlebotomy, some physicians will use hemoglobin. So my physician used hemoglobin and he wanted it below 14. So I was still above 14. So I got another phlebotomy on July 20th and everything came down pretty much to normal-ish. I was 14.1. So I was a little bit high. Uh, hematocrit 43.9 platelets, still higher, up to 1,000. Okay, so I was a little nervous at that point. I got my third and final phlebotomy, you guys. I've not had a phlebotomy since, and I'm so grateful and thankful for that. So I got my final one on the 24th. So first one was on July 17th, final one on July 24th. So I got a lot of blood removed in about eight days. <laughs> I was a little, little fatigued and obviously stressed and just uncertain about what was going on. At that point, hemoglobin came down to 11.9. So that felt good. I felt better in that regard. Hematocrit came down to 37.5. But the platelets, man, the platelets just kept going up. Now up to 1,014. They peaked at 1,066. And I'll tell you, you guys, as soon as I knew that my platelets were this crazy, I stopped being able to sleep through the night. For months, I set an alarm on my phone every two hours because I was afraid I was going to fall asleep and not wake up. And I thought, well, if I, I, I don't know what my, I, I guess I thought I'll wake up every two hours and at least know I'm still here. And I did that for months. Um, wouldn't stay by myself. If my husband was at work, I stayed at a friend's house because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be alone. Um, so really scary, stressful time in my life. So my doctor wanted to start me on medication. He wanted to try anagrolide for the platelets with phlebotomy for the hemoglobin or hydroxyurea. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to learn what I need to learn about these medications. I knew how to do research for scholarly peer reviewed articles because I learned how to do that as a nursing student 
And I did my research. And it wasn't just Wikipedia. I went in with peer-reviewed studies, multiple peer-reviewed studies, which he was happy, happy to look at. And and I presented my case. And I said, here's why I don't want to take these medications. And this was for me. You know, everybody's different what they, what they want to do. I'm just telling you my experience. I advocated for myself. I wanted interferon. Because interferon, according to the peer-reviewed studies, had the only potential of all of the drugs to actually cause remission. And I wanted that opportunity. I wanted that chance. Um, and I didn't like the the risk of secondary cancers associated with the other medications. And the anagrolide had some side effects. I don't remember now exactly what they were that I wasn't thrilled about. But I wasn't too keen on that medication either. So um, different side effect. People, you know, different people react with different medications differently. It's all up to you and your physician if you have PV and you're listening to this. Um, I'm not giving medical advice. I'm telling you my experience. Um, But it's really important that you go in with knowledge and you have those conversations with your physician so that the two of you together can make the best choices, right? So that's what I did. And he was great. And he listened to me and he's like, let's try it. I don't have anybody else on this medication, but let's give it a go. So we did. I started taking Pegasus in August of 2011, the beginning of August 2011. And it did a great job of managing my hemoglobin immediately. I did not have to get another phlebotomy. And I was so happy about that. Um, It did have some side effects that I had to deal with. It caused some significant fatigue. I was taking it weekly. Um, I would say the day after my injection, I was kind of worthless, to be honest. I just lay around the house, you know, not necessarily stay in bed, but I wasn't doing anything super active. Um, That's when the itching started for me. It did not start until I started taking uh, pegylated interferon, but... um, it was severe. It was probably one of the worst symptoms I had. I would be in tears after a shower. I felt like my entire body was on fire. And it took a while for that to settle down over time. So what happened was, so immediately my hemoglobin was controlled. You know, it was it was doing pretty good with the Pegasus. I don't think I went above my threshold um, for a really long time, and occasionally it'll dip up. But what I was able to do was I able to I was able to start spacing out my medication. So I took it weekly, and it was a, a bit of a butt kicker. Okay, tired, bone pain, the itching. About I'd say, hmm, I don't know if it was I maybe half half of my hair fell out. Like my hair thinned dramatically. I ended up just cutting it off into a pixie because I couldn't I couldn't deal with it being so thin and you know whatever so I just cut it off it was fine and then um what else I was working nights three nights a week I had to cut back on that I went to two nights a week um I did get shifted to day schedule during that time and thought I could handle three days a week no I couldn't I had to shift back to two days a week Um, And after a while, I started spacing out my medication with conversations with my doctor, with very careful close lab monitoring. So I went to every two weeks, and we monitored that for a while, and everything kind of stayed the same, status quo. Then I went to every three weeks, and then I went to every four weeks, and that's where I am today. I take it every four weeks, okay? And um, with that, I don't have as much of like the horrible side effects, my hair is basically grown back in. Um, I don't have as much itching after a shower. I have a pretty solid shower routine, basically the one that I shared with you in the patient education component of this episode, um, but I don't have that as bad. And, um, you know, the headaches are basically gone every now and then. Once in a blue moon, I'll get the visual disturbance, but without the headache. And that's when I know I need to go get my labs checked and I need to drink some water. So that's kind of the, my experience with my symptoms, with my diagnosis. Now, with that diagnosis, you know, in addition to the CBC being ordered, I went one day, I think they took 12 vials. They did. They tested me for every kind of cancer. They tested me for the genetic things. I do have the JAK2 mutation. Um, they tested my EPO level. It was very low. 
So all of those things I went through, okay? Um, my spleen has never been enlarged, so I've never had an ultrasound, and I have not had a bone marrow biopsy. My doctor just did not feel that it was necessary um, at that time. Now, if my disease worsens, I probably would get a bone marrow biopsy. So we'll see about that. Not something that I am at all looking forward to. Um, I see my physician once a year. And basically, we talk about my medication regimen, he looks at my numbers, he feels around for my spleen and tells me I'm doing great, that I am doing so much better than a lot of his other patients. Um, he's um, apparently tried using interferon on other patients, but the side effects is what deters them. So for some people, those side effects are unpleasant and and it's just not worth it to them. So yeah, it's always just very individual choice, again, between physician and patient and having those educated discussions. So um, we talked about my treatments, we talked about my phlebotomies. And yeah, so that's kind of my story with polycythemia and just how it's going. And it's just a reminder, you know, if you're having any kind of health issues in nursing school, you guys take the time for yourself, like take the time to go get yourself checked out. I ignored it. I brushed it off and I could have had a really horrible outcome. So cautionary tale right there. Okay. So that will wrap us up for polycythemia vera. Next week, we are going to be talking about what to do in your first five shifts as a new grad nurse. So you're maybe you're in a residency program or on a, you know, orientation for your new job, whatever it is, if you can kind of wrap your brain around these first five shifts being super crucial, I'm going to give you my best tips for what to focus on and what to do in those first shifts next week. See you then. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.